Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. The question, overarching question that my lab seeks to address is how perturbation of hematopoietic and immune development impacts disease susceptibility across the lifespan. And we heard a lot um, earlier in our aging session about how chronic disease, a risk for chronic disease increases across the lifespan. And we now know that increasingly, in addition to um, changes in stem cell function, we now know that um, uh, one of the risk factors for chronic diseases is uh, chronic inflammation. And in both the case of chronic disease and chronic inflammation, the genetic risk factors are really pretty nebulous. What we instead know from accumulating epidemiological uh, data is that um, adverse events, and particularly adverse events during early life, such as um, infection, um, toxicant exposure, and even nutrition, are cumulatively associated with a greater risk for both chronic inflammation and chronic disease. Now, we don't intervene for these types of diseases until adulthood, where there's already a, a significant onset of symptoms. And in this case, um, you know, the, the reduction in risk in, with adult intervention is really pretty minimal. So what our lab seeks to do is to try to identify how these adverse events during early life drive risk for disease so we can uh, target interventions much earlier and thereby have a much greater impact in mitigating risk for disease across the lifespan. Um, so, um, as the title of my talk suggests, um, we approach this from the perspective of developmental hematopoiesis. I'm going to go backwards and, and talk mostly about mouse models in my talk. Um, and this is a, a generalized schematic of the kind of the dogmatic view of hematopoietic development, um, which we have generally conceived of as um, occurring in uh, waves, primarily two waves. Uh, the first is uh, primitive hematopoiesis, uh, which has generally been conceived of as um, really meeting the early oxygenation and scavenging needs of the, developing, the early developing embryo. It arises from the primitive yolk sac, um, as, as Hannah already mentioned. Um, and then subsequently, we get definitive hematopoiesis, which, are, which arises from the um, developing aorta. Um, and the kind of the, the general dogma has been that these definitive HSCs that arise from hemogenic endothelium and the developing aorta, migrate to the fetal liver, which is the primary hematopoietic organ in mice, um, and where they undergo um, a massive expansion. And then right around birth, uh, they see the bone marrow, where they're thought to then give rise to the definitive hematopoietic stem cell compartment in the adult. Um, and as we've tended to think of this, um, this hematopoietic stem cell uh, development is as generally linear. We've also tended to think of immune development as relatively linear, whereas these definitive hematopoietic stem cells that give rise to all immune cells mature, so do their immune cell progeny. Now, over the last um, decade or more, with the advent of more sophisticated genetic approaches such as fate mapping, we now know that this uh, layout of fetal hematopoiesis is far more complex. We know that fetal hematopoiesis is really underwritten by many overlapping waves of hematopoietic cell generation driven from what we think are distinct and pot potentially transient progenitors. Um, and using the same types of approaches, we now know in the field of immunology that these waves of hematopoietic cell generation give, give rise, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. So part of my lab's interest is to try to understand how uh, these transient, what we now know as very heterogeneous, transient hematopoietic progenitors during fetal hematopoiesis ultimately contribute to what we now know is also a very heterogeneous um, adult hematopoietic stem cell compartment.
Um, and we believe that this uh, heterogeneity within the hematopoietic salmon progenitor compartment in the adult underlies um, um, not only differences in the tra trajectory of your immune output across your lifespan, um, obviously as these cells give rise to all your immune cells across your lifespan, but also response to inflammation as we are increasingly aware that different types of hematopoietic stem cells have different responses um, to inflammatory cues. Um, but we also believe that differences in um, makeup of your hematopoietic stem cell compartment might ultimately underlie differences in propensity for clonal expansion, which we heard a lot about um, from um, Len's talk and other talks today. Now, um, simultaneously in the field of immunology, using the same types of genetic fate mapping approaches, we also know um, that these waves of hematopoietic cell generation during fetal hematopoiesis serve a very distinct function within the immune system, which is to give rise to very distinct cell subsets um, during and only during fetal development. And I'm showing uh, just a, a subset of these cells here that come in kind of two overlapping and non-mutually exclusive flavors. Um, they include tissue resonant cells like tissue tissue resonant macrophages, of which I'm showing subsets, some subsets here and which were described earlier, as well as the subsets of cells that we refer to as innate-like lymphocytes. These are cells that were uh, classically referred to as lymphocytes because they express lymphocyte. They look like lymphocytes by flow cytometry, but they function more um, like innate cells or on the border of innate and adaptive immunity. Importantly, these cells that are produced during fetal development are functionally distinct from the immune cells that are produced from adult hematopoietic stem cells. Um, they are, show very poor or limited regeneration from adult bone marrow and or are, are, um, show layered immune development. So there are subsets of cells that are produced from fetal precursors and sometimes from multiple fetal precursors and then are slowly uh, replaced by adult bone marrow hematopoiesis. Um, because of this, these show, cells show a very unique capacity to self-renew or self-maintain in their tissues of residence across the lifespan. Um, the developmental mechanisms that specify these cells are generally poorly understood besides knowing that they come from fetal hematopoiesis. And so part of my lab works on just trying to understand how fetal hematopoiesis makes such different types of cells as compared to adult hematopoiesis. And finally, what I'll be focusing on for the purpose of this talk is that many of these cells are increasingly dysregulated both in tissue-specific diseases because they regulate um, tissue homeostasis and also in diseases of tolerance in the case of innate-like lymphocytes. So um, this work really started um, based on a discovery I made in Camilla Forsberg's lab as a postdoc, um, in which I, in, where I was interested in defining the contribution of fetal hematopoiesis to adult immunity. And here we used a model um, that I won't belabor, in which we um, crossed a flick two, I considered a flick two Cree to a dual color reporter. Um, and when I joined her lab, uh, Camilla had showed that all adult HSCs in this model um, remained tomato positive. Um, and this is just showing you this phenotypically, um, but we also showed this functionally. And when I went into developmental hematopoiesis, I showed indeed that there were tomato-positive HSCs that fit this kind of conventional HSC definition. They seeded the neonate bone marrow and they gave rise to the adult hematopoietic stem cell compartment. We referred to these cells as our tomato-positive adult HSCs. But we also dug up a, a GFP-positive HSC in the fetal liver. Um, we showed that this GFP-positive HSC was capable of seeding the neonate bone marrow, but because of this irreversible fate mapping model, we showed that this GFP-positive cell did not persist into the adult bone marrow under homeostatic conditions. And so, but we also showed that this GFP-positive fetal liver HSC that did not persist in situ into the adult bone marrow um, was a functional HSC because you could, you could isolate it from the fetal liver and transplant it into an irradiated adult recipient, and it would reconstitute the adult bone marrow. So it functioned as an HSC, but it didn't persist in 
HSC2. Um, we showed that, so, and we referred to this GFP positive HSC as a developmentally restricted HSC or the DRHSC. Now, we showed that these two HSCs were functionally distinct. So this GFP-positive DRHSC was lymphoid-biased, both transcriptionally and functionally. And we further showed that this GFP-positive DRHSC was responsible for the production of a subset of these fetal-derived immune cells, most specifically um, these innate-like lymphocytes, including both B1B cells and Vgamma3 expressing gamma-delta T cells. Now, what this discovery did for us um, was to identify a specific transient progenitor um, using this model that give rise to a subset of fetal immune cells that now go on to persist into adulthood and contribute to the adult immune system. And this identified um, really a, a critical developmental window for the development of the immune system where now any extrinsic or intrinsic input into the system is going to shape the phenotype of the adult immune system in the adult hematopoietic system. And so we decided to test this um, by applying extrinsic inputs, either infection, inflammation. We now employ systems where we uh, manipulate maternal diet or maternal toxicant exposure during this window and test how this influences um, development of fetal hematopoietic stem cells, the output and function of these fetal-derived immune cells, um, how this in, um, in, uh, um, affects the uh, the adult HSC compartment, and ultimately how all of these impinge upon immune function and risk for disease all the way out into adulthood. And so um, for the rest of this talk, I'm going to tell you two different stories, um, one which is published, so I'm going to go through it really quickly, and one which is unpublished, which is um, an extension of this work that was recently published. Um, and this first part of work, um, which was recently published in Cell Reports at the end of last year, um, was worked by two talented uh, PhD students in my lab, April Postel, who graduated from UC Merced, and Diego Lopez, who is about to graduate from my lab at University of Utah. Um, so what we, um, the first model we used um, to apply extrinsic inputs to the system was a model that we stole from the neuroliterature, which is maternal immune activation. So here we're simply inducing prenatal inflammation with a single injection of poly-IC, which um, we've heard about already from Len's talk. So I, 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 the joy of being at the end of, this, of the day is that I don't have to explain as much. It's a TLR3 agonist. Um, we're injecting at E14.5, which is when you get maximal HSC accumulation in the fetal liver without it turning into a liver yet. Um, and then we're just tracking uh, both of these two stem cell populations, the tomato HSC and the GFP-positive DRHSC in our FlickSwitch lineage tracing model across, across development. And the first piece of data I'm going to show you is that um, we show that when you induce prenatal inflammation in the mom, you get immediate expansion of the hematopoietic stem and progenitor compartment in the fetus. And this is the first demonstration that prenatal inflammation in the, in the mom actually affects stem and progenitor cells in the fetus. Um, it's pretty straightforward, but it was the first demonstration. Um, we then wanted to go in and dissect out the fetal hematopoietic stem and progenitor response. Um, and what we know and what we've heard a lot about today um, is that in response to almost virtually any um, inflammatory stimulus in the adult, what you invariably get is a myeloid bias. This is driven both by the activation of myeloid-biased hematopoietic stem cells as well as by the expansion of myeloid-biased multipotent progenitors. Um, and so we were expecting to see something similar during fetal hematopoiesis. Uh, we looked at our long-term HSCs, no change. We looked at our short-term HSCs, no change. Um, when we dissected our tomato and um, GFP-positive HSCs, we were surprised to see a robust and very specific response of our lymphoid-biased GFP-positive DRHSC one day following um, induction of prenatal inflammation in the mom. 
When we look downstream at our multipotent progenitors, I go back and forth here between MPP234 and the, the um, myeloid lymphoid uh, nomenclature. Again, no response of our short-term HSCs, no response of our myeloid-biased MPP subsets. These are multipotent progenitors that have lost self-renewal but are still uh, multipotent, but with some lymph lineage bias. Um, but what we see instead is two days after um, after induction of prenatal inflammation, and one day after specific expansion of our lymphoid bias stem cell, we see downstream expansion of our lymphoid bias multipotent progenitor. We wanted to test if this, the downstream expansion of a lymphoid bias multipotent progenitor in response to prenatal inflammation was the result of a lymphoid bi expansion of a lymphoid bias stem cell. And so we did an, Diego did an experiment where he induced prenatal inflammation, pulled out our two stem cell populations, stuck them in culture for 24 hours to see what they would make. And what he found is that even under saline conditions, our GFP-positive DRHSC at baseline, it makes more lymphoid-biased MPP4s. Um, but when we induce prenatal inflammation, he sees that this bias is, is especially exaggerated. And so we believe that this, this is one indication that prenatal inflammation, as opposed to adult inflammation, invokes specific lymphoid bias in C2. We next move to uh, single cell sequencing to further dissect this response at the molecular level. This is in collaboration with Nina Cabezas' lab. Um, and um, one of the things, I'm going to not uh, belabor these data. We have a lot of these data uh, published in the, in the paper. Um, but one of the things we wanted to do with these data was obviously to identify these two uh, populations. We overlaid bulk seek um, bulk seek signatures, and you can see here that our tomato-positive HSC and our GFP-positive DRHSC really bifurcate. This is all fetal liver LSK at E15.5 following saline or poly-IC. The populations that overlay with our tomato-positive HSC are decreased, um, and the populations that overlay with our GFP-positive DRHSC are increased. Um, so this is a nice uh, replication of what we see in vivo. Um, but we, um, we I overlaid HSC and MPP adult signatures. These signatures don't exist um, in fetal hematopoiesis, uh, in mouse at least. Um, and we identified two populations that overlaid both with our GFP and tomato positive DR, uh, excuse me, tomato positive and GFP positive DRHSC respectively, um, and non-overlapping with uh, MPP and overlapping with HSC respectively. Um, this was cluster nine on the left and cluster two, again, at opposite extremes of our uh, single cell sequencing clusters, um, and we perform GSEA. And so what we basically I'm showing you here is that our cluster 2 is our tomato-positive HSC, and our cluster 9 is our GFP-positive DRHSC. And the reason I'm showing you this is because we wanted to go back and figure out why is our GFP-positive DRHSC the cell that is responding here. Um, so we went into the fetal liver. We did this actually across the entire maternal-fetal interface. So we did maternal serum, we did amniotic fluid, and we did fetal liver. But we wanted to figure out what was driving the response. Um, and in response to poly-IC in the mom, we pull out two cytokines in the fetal liver, IL-1-alpha and interferon-alpha. Interferon-alpha, not surprising. We went back and leveraged this across our single cell, single cell sequencing data set. Um, and as you can see here, there's really no story with interleukin signaling. There's very little response. And if you see any response from response to poly-IC, it's down. Um, instead, what we observed when we looked at interferon signaling was a very robust and specific response of our cluster 9, which is our GFP-positive DRHSC. And when we go back in and we look at different genes across um, 
that are associated with IFNAR signaling. We see that this, um, this signaling signature is specific to clusters associated with our DRHSC. So this is all localized on the left and that this signature is upregulated in response to polySE. So we really think that this is a type one interferon response specific to our GFP positive DRHSC that is driving um, this specific expansion. So I'm going to circle back now to look um, at the postnatal period. So what we showed when we looked out into the postnatal period, and this is in uh, postnatal day 14 bone marrow, um, we saw that the HSPC compartment overall was still expanded in the bone marrow. These changes were not specific to long-term HSCs or our conventional tomato-positive HSCs, um, but were specific to our GFP-positive lymphoid-biased DRHSC and also to FLIC2-positive lymphoid-biased MPP4s. Um, this was sustained out into the adult bone marrow, where we saw sustained expansion of the HSPC by frequency, the GFP-positive DRHSCs, lymphoid bias FLIC2-positive MPP4s. Um, and the only difference um, that was significant by absolute cellularity was the GFP-positive DRHSC, which was significantly expanded. Now, how does this relate back to changes at the immune level? Um, we, I told you before that the GFP-positive DRHSC is specifically um, able to produce these innate-like lymphocytes. So we went back and looked at the, uh, the effect of uh, stimulation of this GFP-positive DRHSC by prenatal inflammation on innate-like lymphocyte cellularity and function at postnatal day 14. And we saw specific increases in both B1A and B1B cells. These are innate-like lymphocytes within the peritoneal cavity at postnatal day 14. We also saw specific differences in innate-like marginal zone cells in the spleen, but not conventional B2 cells or conventional follicular their zone cells in the spleen. So this is very specific to these fetal-derived innate-like lymphocytes. Um, these cells function to produce natural antibody within the peritoneal cavity, so we meant measured natural antibody levels. These include both IgM and IgG3. Um, we saw both IgM and IgG3 significantly increased, and I want to note that this is on a per, this is controlled for the number of cells, so this is measured on a per cell basis. So these cells are not only increased in cellularity within the, within the peritoneal cavity, but they are pumping out more natural antibody on a per cell basis. We also saw that they produced a little more IL-10 in response to stimulation with LPS, and that these changes were sustained all the way out into adulthood. So we see increased natural antibody levels in the peritoneal cavity. Now I've shown you that as a proof of principle, we can induce prenatal inflammation with this uh, stimulus, poly-IC, in the mom, um, and that this results in a um, lymphoid bias during prenatal development by expanding a lymphoid-biased hematopoietic stem cell and its downstream lymphoid-biased multipotent progenitors. Um, that this results in the expansion and hyperactivation of these innate-like lymphocyte progeny of this developmentally restricted hematopoietic stem cell, and that this has consequences um, for the adult hematopoietic stem cell compartment in terms of persistent remodeling and the persistent, inappropriate persistence of a GFP-positive DRHSC into adulthood. And so now I'm going to tell you about the next installment of this story where we're looking at risk for disease as a consequence of this, um, of, as, of this insult during development. Um, so this is what we joke as Diego's second PhD project. Um, he chose to use the same model, um, which is uh, prenatal inflammation and maternal immune activation induced by polySE. And here he's looking, he's focused on another innate-like lymphocyte, a more recently discovered one, um, an innate lymphoid cell type 2, um, innate lymphoid cells, ILCs, um, not to be confused with innate-like lymphocytes. Um, and he's looking um, at how perturbation of the progenitor for this specific cell type um, 
influences asthma susceptibility and lung function by remodeling uh, lung, lung, immune, the lung immune landscape uh, during early development. So a brief primer on ILCs. Um, these have been recently implicated in asthma. They are... Um, they have only been discovered within the last 10 or so years. Um, they reside within the lung and, um, and other tissues, including gut and skin. Um, they are tissue resident as well. Uh, they respond very rapidly to stress signals. So, um, as these do not have, um, very, they do not have specific receptors. They instead respond to stress signals like IL-33, uh, TSLP, and IL-25. Um, and they've been recognized as drivers of allergic asthma, mostly for mouse models, but they've more recently been found in human samples um, and as and, and human asthmatic patients. Um, they colonize the lung very early at E17.5, and they peak in cellularity at P14, where they're subsequently replaced more by adaptive immune cells like TH2 cells. So they're kind of a TH2 cell equivalent. Um, and their progenitors, importantly, arise very early during fetal development in the fetal liver. So um, the first, really this project arose because we were doing these kind of experiments and Diego was like, hey, I want to look in the lung. Um, and what he found, um, and this is just our gating strategy for these cells, and what he found is that these ILC2s were also, like our um, innate-like lymphocytes in the peritoneal cavity, these ILC2s were also significantly expanded in the postnatal lung in response to prenatal inflammation. They, we begin to see expansion at postnatal day 9. They're significantly, like, two- to three-fold expanded at postnatal day 14, which is when they peak in the lung. You can see that they, they, their numbers significantly decrease into adulthood, but they're still, we see still a sustained expansion into adulthood. Um, but he also found, like our innate-like lymphocytes in the peritoneal cavity, that these cells were also hyperactivated. So this is just at baseline without any other challenge. These cells function to produce IL-5 and IL-13, like TH2 cells. And what he found um, is that when we look at the percent of cells that are producing IL-5 and IL-13, we see more in the postnatal 14 lung. Um, but we also see that these cells just produce more, as measured by MFI. So there are more cells producing IL-5 and IL-13, and they just produce more. So these cells are not only expanded, they're also hyperactivated, um, and they also express more KLRG1, which is an inflammatory marker for these ILC2s. So these are just hyperactivated cells across the board. So um, one, of the, one experiment that Diego chose to do was to test whether this inflammatory phenotype was programmed at the progenitor level. So he induced prenatal inflammation in the mom. He pulled out our DRHSCs. So because we assume that our DRHSC is a progenitor for many innate-like lymphocytes. So he pulled out our DRHSC, our GFP-positive DRHSC from a FlickSwitch mouse um, at E15.5 one day after induction of prenatal inflammation. He transplanted them into irradiated adults, and he looked to see what kinds of ILC2s. First, do they make ILC2s, and what kinds of ILC2s do they make? Um, and he found that they do, in fact, make ILC2s, um, which, so they are a precursor for ILC2s in the fetal liver. Um, and then, more importantly, what he found is that they make hyperactivated ILC2s. So they're making ILC2s, both more ILC2s that produce IL-5 and IL-13, um, and they also produce ILC2s that produce more IL-5 and IL-13. So these GFP-positive DRHSCs can see prenatal inflammation um, and presumably type 1 interferons. I'll show you data in one second. Um, that drives them that to produce these hyperactive ILC2s even after one day. They can be transplanted and four weeks later produce ILC2s um, that are this hyperactivated without any other additional stimulus.
Um, so we went back into prenatal, uh, into prenatal development and looked at the um, common helper innate-like progenitor, which is the upstream, upstream progenitor for innate-like lymphocytes. Um, and we found um, that during fetal development, again, immediately one day later, these, days are, these cells are significantly expanded. Their expansion is sustained until E17.5. Um, but if we look at the postnatal 14 bone marrow, these cells are no longer expanded. So this is a transient phenomenon programmed during fetal development. Um, Diego was also really interested in confirming and making sure that this was not due to direct activation of any fetal, of any ILC2. Well, ILC2s don't exist at, at E14.5, only their progenitor does. He wanted to make sure that this was, this was not due to direct activation of any fetal cell, uh, directly by polyIC, um, within the fetal liver. So he did these nice crosses of TLR3 hets with TLR3 homozygotes. Um, and what he, um, showed very nicely was that there was no requirement for TLR3 within the pup. So this is all, um, but there was a very strong requirement, um, for a hyperactivated ILC2 phenotype postnatally, um, for the mom to have TLR3. So you need to activate TLR3 in the mom with polyacine and induce a type 1 interferon response, which we've already shown in the fetal liver, um, to generate this phenomenon. Um, we have also shown the same thing for expansion of the DRHSC. So it is absolutely required to generate a type 1 interferon response, and this is a type 1 interferon response-driven phenomenon. Okay, so we've also... Oh, something didn't show up here. I apologize. Okay, so we've also um, done um, performed single-cell sequencing on these postnatal ILC2s because we wanted to understand at a molecular level um, what is driving, again, this hyperactivated phenotype. And you're missing the top one, which is basically a summary of these two bottom ones. Um, so we had um, eight nice clusters. This is only ILC2s. So you can see that there's heterogeneity even within this ILC2, class, ILC2 subset. Um, and what we identified um, were two, let's see, there we go, um, were two clusters, one that was significantly expanded, that's cluster five, um, within the poly-IC group, uh, poly-IC-treated offspring or post prenatally inflamed exposed offspring, um, and then one that was almost entirely unique um, to, this, to the um, offspring exposed to prenatal inflammation. Um, and when we drill down on these, um, on these two subsets, what we see is that our our um, cluster five is, it fits very well with our in vivo data. I like to do um, single cell seq where I already have in vivo data that I can fit it to. It fits very nicely where we see IL-5, IL-13, I can't even read this. Okay, IL-5, IL-13, and KLRG1 right at the top as defining markers of this cluster. Um, so, and, but we also see, um, this is relatively new data. LGALS3, which has been strongly implicated in asthma um, in this cluster. Um, what's nice about this is that this is also a phenotype that fits with a neonatal phenotype as described um, from a previous lab that has looked at um, fate mapping. Uh, it's the only other lab that has looked at, uh, Rich Loxley's lab at UCSF, that has looked at fate mapping of ILC2s and shown that there is layered development. He has not ever, they have not identified the precursors of layered development, but they, show that they have shown that there are different layers 
factors and that neonatal ILCTs have an activated phenotype. And that's exactly what we see in expanded cluster five. Cluster eight, which is our cluster that is unique to our prenatal inflammation condition, is has both a memory and a stem cell-like phenotype. So it's defined by markers like KIT, which is not on here, TNSFR18, and um, and uh, ZBTV16, PBX3, etc. has a long list of memory and stem-like phenotype. Okay. So we next wanted to look at how prenatal inflammation remodels the lung immune landscape. And we were specifically interested in how a hyperactivated ILC2 phenotype that is pumping out IL-5 and IL-13 cytokines, cytokines that are meant to activate immune cells and recruit immune cells, ends up remodeling the lung. And not surprisingly, when we look at all these other cell types in the lung, we see drastic changes, increases in B and T cells generically, um, increases in NK cells, increases in eosinophils, also not surprisingly surprisingly, since that's the function of these cytokines. We also saw decreases in, in FOXP3 positive Tregs, and we also saw a complete switching over to Th2 mediated immunity. So we see a decrease in Th1 cells and a drastic increase in the percentage of Th2 cells in response to, not, again, not surprisingly, an increase in these cytokines within the lung. Um, we were interested in figuring out which of these changes occurred first, so we profiled all these changes over time. And what we found was that even though all these changes are present at P14, the first change we see is our ILC2s. And I don't have time to show you um, all the data, obviously, but the ILC2 proliferation happens right out the gate. So we see changes to ILC2 proliferation at P0 and P3. So this is a really early effect that we think is driving all these other changes in the lung at P14. Um, Diego also profiled all the cytokines in the lung, and this is just to show you that there's really no differences at P14 detectable by these, these kind of broad cytokine assays, except... IL-33. You'll recall that IL-33 is one of the alarmins that activates ILC2s. Um, and what we see is actually that IL-33 is decreased in the lung in response to prenatal inflammation. And this was really surprising to us. How can you have a hyperactivated phenotype if the stimulus for these cells is decreased? Um, and what we found is that actually our ILC2s are hypersensitive to IL-33. Um, so we, and, and this is shown both in these um, charts where we're, in these graphs where we're looking at the proliferative response with a cell trace violet to increasing doses of IL-33, but also quantified um, in this graph to the right. So here we're looking at um, increasing doses of IL-33 and CTV. Um, and so we actually think that either ILC2s are acting as a sink, absorbing a bunch of IL-33 within the lung, or um, I think uh, more provocatively that um, hyperactivated ILCTs are actually capable of remodeling the lung epithelium this early during life, and that's why you're getting less IL-33 out of the lung epithelium. Okay, so the last piece of this is how does this actually influence, how does this actually influence um, lung function? And so we've done this both in the neonate and in the adult, and I'm just, for sake of time, going to show you the adult data, where um, Diego has um, performed a papain challenge um, and done both flex event testing and a comprehensive lung immune analysis. Um, again, both at P14, or yeah, P14 and also adult, adulthood, um, to test how all of these changes now influence the function of the lung and in an asthma setting. Um, and so um, the first piece of data I'm going to show you, so this is, uh, this is in adulthood. Um, and this is to show you that it, this is a very acute challenge. This is not a chronic challenge, very different from what most people do. So uh, only five days of acute pain challenge. So 
on its own in a saline-treated exposed adult animal, papain does not do anything to ILC2s. The only thing it does is increase eosinophils. And, and I'm showing you eosinophils and ILC2s because those are the only two cells that change in the adult. Um, now, when we look at our prenatally exposed uh, animals, prenatal inflammation exposed animals, our polyacy exposed, we see that our ILC2s are, have a sustained expansion. It's not, it's not significantly different for papain. But when we look at our eosinophils, those are significantly expanded in response to, to um, papain as well. So now in our poly-IC-exposed uh, animals, both our ILC2s and our eosinophils are expanded in response to papain, and I want you to remember that, okay? Because now I'm going to show you the data for the flex event. So this is a flex event, so you're measuring mechanical uh, response of the lung, um, inhale, exhale, and these are pressure volume loops, so you're literally looking at the expansion of the lung and then inhalation and exhalation. And I'm going to quantify for the, this for you in a moment. So, um, so here's the quantification of this, since I'm running out of time. So you do this pre-methacholine challenge, and then with a methacholine challenge, it just makes it harder for the lung to open and close. And what I want you to see here is that that even without a methacholine challenge, your um, poly-IC papain is significantly impaired. And then in this acute setting, there is no effect of papain and saline. And that is not surprising because black six mice, these are black six mice, are notoriously difficult to get testing on the flex event. We were told, don't even bother. Diego bothered, and he got, yeah, he bothered. Um, and now he's getting effects of both um, uh, post-methacholine for poly-IC saline and poly-IC papain. And we really think that these are re mediated by our ILC2s, where our ILC2s are the only cell type significantly expanded in both of these settings. Okay, so to summarize quickly, um, we really think our work defines a critical window for both hematopoietic and immune development, uh, where we show that both hematopoietic and immune function can be shaped by extrinsic inputs during development. We show that prenatal inflammation is capable of shaping both the output and the function of these fetal-derived immune cells. And we think that this is driven by the activation of specific transient lymphoid bias progenitors uh, during fetal development, um, that this has consequences for long-term uh, long consequences for both normal and abnormal uh, immune function. And we think that this shows that programming for disease risk can begin during fetal development from fetal hematopoietic stem and progenitors. Um, and with that, I'd like to, again, thank the people that did this work. Um, most of the work I presented to you today was uh, done by Diego Lopez um, with help from April Postel, our collaborators, um, Nina Cabezas-Walshide, uh, Rob Wellner, who helps us with SingleSeq now, and the Riley Lab for helping us um, with the flex event testing and all of our funding sources. Um, I'll take any questions. Thank you. I can shout. Yeah. <laughs> that was such a beautiful talk and such an important discovery and you followed it so so beautiful to so comprehensively. Thank you. So many questions for the developmental biology perspective. So what's your take on how does this now diverge uh, from the classical HEC? When are they born? Where are they? Now that you have a signature, can you follow them? And then how does it relate to also the LNP, the lymphomyeloprogenitor that has been described in mouse and also we see it in, in humans. So, so what, how does it connect with that hierarchy of all the other 
guys still out there? Yeah, yeah. So um, it's a great question. More coming soon because we have some new models that we're using to dissect this. I mean, I I think, um, I mean, there's some recent publications to show that um, MPPs probably come from hemogenic endothelium separately um, than definitive HSCs and that MPPs are contributing to adult blood protection for a long time independent of adult HSCs. I, I mean, so... Um, I'll answer this a kind of different way. I think that these DRHSCs and some of these early progenitors are here. The reason that this is an interferon responsive cell is because these cells are here to take the hit. I think it makes sense to conserve adult hematopoietic stem cells for later and that you have cells that are there to take the hit and to prepare um, the offspring for what is to come, um, whereas your adult stem cells will prepare you, will take you the distance. Um, so I think it makes sense. I, as in terms of origin, this is we're working on it. <laughs> Thanks for the question. Okay, one more somewhere. Go ahead. Uh, wonderful talk. Uh, so another event that occurs during field development at this critical window is uh, the production of testosterone by the male uh, fetuses. So I was wondering if you uh, have looked compared the male versus female uh, mice at the, the different stages and if this could be part of the programming that we see that produces a different immune system um, between male and female uh, where females have a much higher propensity for autoimmune disease later in life. Yeah, um, it's a really interesting question. Um, we So we don't see differences during fetal development um, in this system, and we don't see differences at postnatal day 14, where ILC2s are known to be also regulated, heavily regulated by sex um, and by estrogen. Um, and so... Um, but at these early stages, they are not. Um, one of the reasons we focus on, on postnatal day 14. Um, so I... It's a great question. I don't know exactly the answer, but we don't see differences in early stages by by sex. All right, that's great. Thank Thank you so much again.